Welcome to the Natural Running Network. My name is Richard Diaz, and what I hope to do is introduce you to some amazing athletes and luminaries from the sports science community, and what has come to be expected, I'll provide some highly opinionated rants on all aspects of endurance sports and my current favorite, obstacle course racing. Now sit tight, grab a cup of coffee, and let's do this. All right, so this is a book that uh, I've been sitting on for quite a long time, and this interview I wasn't sure how to approach it. I think it's an important read, and I think it's an important topic, especially for you guys out there that have been beating the hell out of yourselves in this OCR community. The book is entitled Haywire Heart, and essentially what it does is it talks about how too much exercise can kill you and what you can do to protect your heart. And the authors of the book were Dr. John Mandrolo, who is a cardiac electrophysiologist who works in cardiology practice and specializes in heart arrhythmias. And Chris Case is the managing editor of Velo News. He holds a BS in neuroscience and has conducted research in the National Institute of Mental Health. He's a former state champion runner and cyclocross masters world champion. And Leonard Zinn, who was a member of the U.S. national cycling team, a lifelong endurance athlete, and was reported on major stories for Velo News for the past 30 years. Gentlemen, let's uh, let's kick this can down the road. Absolutely. Why don't uh, Leonard? Why don't you start by by uh, describing how this all began with your your uh, own experiences? Uh, I developed a cardiac arrhythmia all of a sudden, seemingly out of the blue. Now, when I look back, maybe it wasn't so much out of the blue, but as I realized as months progressed that this was something that was completely going to change my life. And not only that, that it affected a whole lot of people that I'd been cross-country ski racing with and bike racing with for decades. That, And then Chris and I are good friends and, and we used to do many long, long rides, as hard of long rides as we could do together. And we raced cyclocross together and um, trained together and stuff like that. And so it was natural that I talked to Chris about it a lot, and his eyes got very wide, and um, we ended up collaborating on an article for Velo News, and there was just so much response to that that then we thought, well, this ought to be a book, and we wrote a book. Okay, Chris, so you guys are you guys are training partners essentially, or had been, had and, been, yeah, yeah. Now, when you guys get out, let's just kind of paint a scenario here. When you get out and you and Leonard are out there hammering up the mountains, so both you guys are in uh, Colorado, right? So a lot of mountain racing, I'm assuming. Yes. Yeah, a lot of a lot of mountain racing, a lot of really long climbs, things like that. Yep. So when when this was all coming about, Leonard, uh, talk about the type of episodes that you were having that caused you to be concerned. Well, specifically, one time I was going hard up a mountain and my heart rate. You know, I was 55, so my heart rate. First of all, with my height and everything, I've never had a really, really high max heart rate. And then the older you get, the lower that max heart rate becomes. And and anyway, I was going pretty hard, but I was probably at 155 heart rate, somewhere in that range. And all of a sudden, I felt this sort of like 
like a downshift in my chest and just a weird sort of gurgly feeling. And then I looked down and my Garmin was now reading 218. And uh, I assumed that the Garmin was just wrong. But, you know, a, a chest strap monitor that you've always depended on, at least, that, that's been accurate always before, tends to be pretty accurate when you're going uphill in the summer and your chest is sweaty. You know, where it's not accurate is when you're going downhill and the wind's blowing on it and your jersey's flapping and things like that. So anyway, I kept tapping on the thing and just basically ignoring it. But after seven minutes of it just staying like that, that was really my only symptom. Otherwise, I felt I felt fine. I felt strong. And in fact, then I stopped and it went right back down. And I thought, oh, geez, I just ruined a perfectly good Strava KOM here. And I turned around and did a lot more hard riding and training. And and then it was only later in the day that I that I called my primary care physician and said, hey, can you give me a recommendation for a cardiologist? Because I think I ought to have something checked out. And they said, well, why? And I told them what happened. They said, oh, you need to go to the ER. You don't need a recommendation. And to the ER, and this was now like eight hours after this original thing had happened. And the doctor measured an elevated level of troponin, which is a in my bloodstream, that's a uh, an enzyme that gets released when cardiac cells die. It's an indicator of a heart attack. And he told me, "Boy, you you got to go right downtown to the main cardiac unit, and you can't have your wife drive you. You've got to you got to go in an ambulance." And I, you know, I I think a lot of endurance athletes, and I certainly was in this category, think that doctors don't understand them and and that they're used to dealing with sick people all the time and that you know this was an overreaction based on seeing a lot of sick people except that this particular doctor in the ER in Boulder was the team doctor for the Garmin Sharp professional racing team and he dealt with some of the top athletes in the world who placed in the top 10 or 5 in the in the Tour de France in the past and and um and he told me look you know, it's not just from hard riding because when I measure these guys' blood afterward, I don't see elevated troponin in their blood after a really hard workout. So I, you know, I went in and, and then that, that's what then started this whole, I spent the night there. I had lots of tests done and they, you know, they looked inside my heart, did the angiogram and said, boy, you're, you're, circulatory system is beautiful. It's like you've got the arteries of 14 year old. What are you even doing in here? So it was, it was really, it's just an electrical problem. And then once I started realizing that this was a chronic one for me and that I wasn't going to be able to continue to race and I wasn't going to be able to continue to do long rides and, and that there were a number of my friends who not only had had stuff like that, but it had much worse. And and had almost died from it or had died from it that um, I started really taking it seriously. So what was the end diagnosis? You had some fashion of arrhythmia, I'm assuming, right? Yeah, and ultimately my diagnosis was, was called focal atrial tachycardia or multifocal atrial tachycardia where it's in the atria of the heart. So first of all, if if you have an arrhythmia in the atria versus the ventricles, the atria, the two upper upper chambers, it decreases the efficiency of moving blood into the ventricles, which then is what gets pumped out to your to your lungs and to the rest of your body from the two different ventricles. But it it's not going to kill you. 
if you have an arrhythmia in the ventricles, that's the kind of thing that, that's when, when they say somebody died of cardiac arrest, that's generally what they're talking about. They had an arrhythmia in the ventricles. That's as distinct from a heart attack, which is where there's a blockage in a, in a coronary artery. So the ventricles, just for the, the audience's sake, these are the two lower chambers in the heart, and the left ventricle is basically the holding chamber that delivers blood to the working body. Is that correct? Yes. And so what you're saying is that in your case, there was some dysfunction in the atria, which was changing the rhythm in which the blood was being delivered to the ventricles. Is that right? Yes. Yes. So in my case, this focal part to it means that that I have some rogue cluster of cardiac cells in my atria that in one of the two atriums that is um, it decides to pace the heart on its own. In other words, in the upper part of your heart is the, is the sinus node, and that's what's supposed to dictate your, your heart rhythm. And, and the vagus nerve tells it whether to be in fight or flight and to be, really be going fast or whether to calm down and, and run you know, at, at your resting heart rate. And you can have these cells in your heart that try and take over pacemaking ability and just start the electrical signal all on their own. And, and that's what I have. Mine is one that it only happens when I'm exercising hard, and I've tried twice to have it fixed in the, once just a week and a half ago, tried it twice to have it fixed in the OR, and they can't duplicate what happens in exercise in the OR well enough to to find this group of cells so that they can't then burn it up and kill it, which is what's called an ablation and would presumably stop my arrhythmia, so I'm just going to have to live with it. There are the most common atrial tachycardia, or well, it's not actually called an atrial tachycardia, but the most common atrial arrhythmia is called atrial fibrillation or AFib. And that shows that it affects a disproportionate number of lifelong endurance athletes and that you have a very disorganized convulsing happening in your atria, which fibrillation by definition means a heart rate over 300 beats a minute and also chaotic and disorganized. Now, since the blood actually also works by gravity, once it's been delivered into the atria, it can still fall down into the ventricles. You can still get blood pumped from the right ventricle into your lungs and from the left ventricle out out to your body. You just can't generally produce as much power if you're in atrial tachycardia or atrial fibrillation. Let's talk about the training effects or the types of things that would most likely put a person at risk in these circumstances. I don't know which one of you guys could best answer that, but I'm really curious to know whether it's a function of long duration, high intensity effort, whether it be high intensity interval-based type training. What, What do you think is the main culprit behind this kind of dysfunctions or damage that's created to the heart? I'll let you answer that, Chris, if you'd like. I think that's one of the million-dollar questions is what is really causing this, what uh, sort of cocktail of volume and intensity. Um, It's not so easy to answer. Um, It's an accumulation of years of training. I think Uh, it's um, repeated long efforts, um, the duration of the rides. Uh, Again, I'm not trying to avoid the question. If we knew, it would be great because then we could tell people not to do it and avoid these 
these issues, but it's not so clear cut. It does it does have a cumulative effect over the years. And I don't know if there's other things you want to add to that, Leonard. Yeah, well, the main thing I'd want to add is, you know, for us to answer that question, you'd have to say, okay, this piece of research says that that's what happens. But the way data like that, you know, very specific cause and effect data on scientific tests is generally done is by what's called double blind study, where you where you have a control group and you have you have a group that you put in some change in their life and that you can restrict the other variables so that they don't really exist. And, and then you make this change, but neither group nor any of the researchers know which one has gotten the change and which one hasn't. In other words, you know, one group will get a placebo pill, the other group will get the actual drug, and the researchers won't know until the whole thing's over with, and, and neither will the subject. And so that's called a double-blind test, and it passes the smell test of, okay, this is a legitimate scientific test. You can't conceal somebody's training load from them, so you can't do a double-blind test on athletes and have a control group that's, you know, otherwise identical to the to the test group and and neither of them knows what's different and nor do the researchers. So what you have to do is these is these huge compilations of data and you know like two of the tests that were the most telling and are in our book are on mass start cross-country ski races in Scandinavia, one in Sweden and one in Norway. And they, you know, these these races have 16,000 participants each year in them. So you can you can then follow a whole lot of people over a long period of time, and then the computer crunches all the data, and then it says, okay, you know, look, these people have a higher incidence of AFib by this percentage than the rest of the population, and, and, and also that the faster you are, the, the higher your incidence of AFib. But you can't say, well, that's because they trained longer or they trained with more intensity or you know, anything. You, you just know that it's related to the fact that they have, have trained hard for this big event each year and they've done this event repeatedly. And there was a direct relationship between how many times they'd done the event and the incidence of AFib and a direct relationship between how fast they, they did the race and the incidence of AFib. Otherwise, you, you just really can't say, well, it's intensity or it's duration or it's both or what. Well, there's obviously data or research that's been out there relative to success in these events. You guys familiar with Dr. Steven Seiler? Yes. Yes. Yeah, he's obviously someone that has done a lot of research with that segment of athletes, a lot of uh, Nordic skiers, cross-country skiers, and that type of thing. And what he's shown is successful models, and you guys have probably seen some of this research, where this uh, 80-20 formula of training seems to have borne out a bunch of success. So I guess what I'm gathering and what I'm trying to gather from this, and I know that it's hard because there's no empirical data that, to say this type of intensity is what's killing people or this type of duration is killing people, but there's got to be something that points to failure in training. And I guess failure in training would be like you're not performing nearly as well as you could have because of the way you're approaching your training. And the, I guess the worst case scenario is, is it's killing you, right? So I just wonder if there's some way. I mean, you guys obviously got some thoughts on what someone might do to prevent the potential of this happening short of just saying, I'm not going to do any high intensity or long duration racing anymore. 
Yeah, well, I think what you can say, um, I cross-country ski raced for quarter century myself and, and did the, these events that are in the book in the Haywire Heart. And, I, and I, um, I know that in order to be successful at them, you have to have a strong endurance base. I mean, these are the, the, the Norwegian race in the Haywire Heart is a is 54 kilometer race that goes over three mountain ranges. And the Swedish one is a 90 kilometer race. So those are both require a lot of endurance and you have to have base training in endurance, but then it also to be successful at them, to be one of the fast guys in the fast groups, you definitely have to have intensity. There's no question that you're not going to be skiing in the front, in the front groups of those races. If, if you don't have quite a bit of, of interval training. So um, both of these are, are involved. There's no question about that. I'd like to uh, chime in and say, um, I talked to Dr. Seiler last week. Oh, wow. Uh, he himself has an arrhythmia, interestingly enough. Um, he has not read our book yet, but I made him aware of it, and he's going to check it out. <laughs> But um, yeah, he's, you know, from his research, he's looked at the top athletes to see what they've done to get to where they're at. And um, I think it's worth noting that this 80-20 ratio that he sees in people is um, the 80% of the mileage that they're doing, the 80% 80 of the time is spent in what cyclists would know as zone two. A lot of athletes will be familiar with different zones, but it's a, it's a pretty low level heart rate or power range, um, and then 20% being spent in upper ranges. But again, it goes back to what Leonard was saying and, and the, the, the need for both of them to train for really any type of event. You're going to be doing long hours and some intense workouts. I think, though, that what we haven't yet talked about is the fact that a massive component to training is resting. You can train all you want. If you never rest and you never let your body recover, then you're never going to actually reap the benefits of all of that training. Uh, and you're never going to allow it to, in quotes, super compensate for all of the damage that you've created through training. It's only through rest and um, recovery that you get stronger. That brings up the second million dollar question. How much rest do you need? How much recover time do you need? And um, not so easy to answer, but generally speaking, you rest as hard as you train. To be more specific, there's a lot of things you can look at, both from a um, data point of view, your heart rate variability scores from day to day, um, some self-evaluation questionnaires that are very effective at understanding how well someone is recovered. Um, they take into consideration someone's mental state, mood, uh, as well as obviously levels of fatigue and, and perception of, of levels of fatigue that go a long way at telling somebody, um, helping them understand how well rested and recovered they are. And um, again, it's, it's, it's so, easy to overlook the need for rest when someone's training for a big event, but it's crucial to not only optimize performance, but, you know, give your heart a little bit of a break and it will 
do wonders for your performance and your general health. Well, uh, as we discussed earlier, uh, I do VO2 testing on athletes, and I probably, at this point in the game, have conducted more VO2 tests on obstacle course racing athletes than anybody else in the world. I mean, literally, I, I test a ton of these athletes. And because the sport is new, there's, I mean, I guess the reason I, I have that much going on is because nobody else is doing it. But I've been looking at the heart rate responses in these athletes, and I'm looking at the type of training they're doing because I'm also using data of athletes I'm coaching that are all over the world and looking at the cause and effect relationships with what they're doing relative to the type of training I'm prescribing. But I guess the, that's the long way around me talking about, A, I'm really an advocate of heart rate specific training for this particular sport. If it were cycling, I'd probably be leaning a little bit closer towards power. But as we sit here now, there's no way to really effectively measure power output running so all we have still is heart rate. The question I'm going to ask you is, what are your thoughts on those that are kind of training perceptively as opposed to gathering data? Well, I know that uh, Leonard is a faithful user of his heart rate monitor. Um, man, it, I'd say that a heart rate is a minimum. A heart rate monitor is at a minimum what you want to be using. Cyclists do have this luxury where they can... Um, use both a power meter and a heart rate monitor to understand whether heart rate is dropping relative to power on a given day and then understand whether they're fatigued or not. Um, if you don't have both of them, of course, a heart rate monitor is going to be a pretty invaluable tool to tell you really how hard you're working. Um, you're, you, you can still tell some about your levels of fatigue and things like that. And you could be very specific with your training. Uh, if you're just working off of perceived effort, I don't know if there's been a lot of, I haven't seen a lot of studies that um, go into detail whether, how accurate someone can be at their perceived level of effort. I'm sure the more you train, the more you, quote, know your body and know yourself, the better you can get at it. But are you also tricking yourself into thinking at times that you're performing better than you are? Or, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a, that's a tough one. Leonard, I don't know if you have other, other, other thoughts. I, I guess the one thing maybe that I would say is that, is that there is an advantage, I suppose, to working just on perceived effort if you're, if you're honest with yourself about it in that you can find out that really you have the ability to discover overtraining if you really listen to your body and if you really are, are doing it honestly on perceived effort, then uh, can certainly be done and that possibly not paying attention to electronic gadgets and instead just paying attention to your body, you might very well uh, avoid some of these pitfalls. But I also know that the tendency without data is to discount what they're hearing from their body and just keep pushing harder if they're they're not going as well as they want to be and the default is not necessarily to to say hey you know maybe i need to rest more the default is often hey i think i need to train more yeah. <laughs> right well, i think the operative word there is honesty with yourself and um, we all all of us and and obstacle course racers and cyclists and runners of all kinds, we have 
egos. You know, we are tough. We want to be tough. We want to be hard about this stuff. And it's really at times difficult to be honest with yourself, but, um, that's part of this, you know, Leonard, Leonard would be the first to tell you, he probably pushed himself a little too much here and there, even when he was told originally that, uh, he had these issues, you know, he went into a little bit of denial. Nah, can't be me. It's not me. Pushed a little harder. Um, tried to experiment with a few things to see if he could avoid these episodes, even while doing what he wanted to do. And yeah, I'll let Leonard follow up if he wants to. His ego probably got in the way a little bit. Yeah, that's certainly true. The thing that comes to mind while we're having this discussion is that a lot of the athletes that I've tested, their perception of what is functionally aerobic versus what is not is skewed. And they may assume that they're able to function aerobically at a much higher heart rate response than they're capable of. And so when you talk about perception, if you're wrong from the gate and you've gotten away with it, then you put the bar maybe a little higher for yourself in your training and the results become mysterious. You don't really know what was causing you to get better or worse or what mechanism you need to be triggering in order to get the type of results you're hoping for. So I've just, I'm at ends with the, the concept of just suggesting that you know your body because you know what you've survived, but you don't know what potentially is the right thing or wrong thing to do. Yeah, I, I would also add that if you've been, been an athlete ever since you were young, there is a tendency as you get older to think that you can do things that you used to be able to do when you were young. For instance, when I was on national cycling team and I had nothing else to do other than ride my bike and rest and eat, that, um, yeah, boy, I could do, I could ride my bike 500 miles a week, no problem, do a lot of hard hard training in there, you know, race week-long, two-week-long stage races and and come out of it feeling stronger than when I went in. And then I'm not the first one that thinks, you know, in your 40s or 50s, well, geez, you know, if, if I just do those same kind of workouts, you know, and not put in a huge correction factor of both volume intensity and rest that's required when you're when you're in your 40s or 50s and you have family and job and all sorts of other things that you know maybe other stressors death in the family or divorce or whatever you know joint custody of your kids who knows what that that all of which affect the training load you can handle and if you don't take all those into account you can definitely get in, into an overtraining situation easily and and we tend to believe that there is a correlation between overtraining, even if you're not talking about overtraining from a really clinical perspective, like one where somebody's got to take months off, but just sort of a chronic overdoing it, that we believe that there is a strong correlation between that and developing a cardiac arrhythmia. Okay, so the, the book essentially talks about the dangers of just kind of discounting the need to take recovery, realizing there's dangers associated with pushing your body too hard too often. 
You also suggested that there are some, some takeaways that will help to protect you from having incidents. Can we talk about those a little bit? Yeah, sure. I mean, one we definitely talked about is, is rest. That's probably the biggest one. Um, there's definitely a nutrition component, especially as you get older. That becomes more and more important. And literally, if your heart doesn't have the minerals that it needs to perform properly, you're likely to have, have some problems. Let's talk about the, uh, the nutrition component. What are you suggesting? Is there a particular approach to your diet that you think is beneficial? Well, you know, the haywire heart, that's, that is, as far as actual diet to eat, that's something that I think, you know, we just intentionally didn't delve into it too deeply to say, oh, you know, you should be on a paleo diet or you should be on this or that. And, and we haven't looked deeply enough into the research to say one way or the other. But, but I think there's a certainly from an anecdotal basis and some clinical study basis, um, there are some micronutrients like magnesium, for instance, that are definitely required in a critical components. Magnesium, calcium, sodium are all critical components of the electrical signal that travels through the cardiac muscle. And if you, if you have a shortage of any of those, that you can have a problem. And where this can result is uh, lots of long, hard training where you're sweating a lot and you're not replacing those minerals, then um, that can be an issue for sure. Another issue is, is inflammation. Inflammation plays a huge role in garden variety cardiac disease and you know, hard, hardening of the arteries, blockages, all that sort of thing that can lead to heart attacks as well as, as, to, as to arrhythmias. And there's a huge component of it that comes from diet that it's pretty well established that high sugar diets are extremely inflammatory, for instance and that some of the studies that have, have been done showing high amounts of not only arrhythmias but also coronary artery disease in athletes has been in you know aging marathoners and ultra marathoners where uh, their kind of training tended to not only you know extensive and hard and all that but also they tended to eat a lot of a lot of simple sugars just taking gels and bars and on and on like that during the events and also in the rest of the time. They were hungry a lot and not to be careful about what you're, you're taking in. And I think a real common perspective that a lot of endurance athletes have is, boy, you know, I train so hard, I can eat whatever I want because I'm just burning it up. Well, that may be, but you're also, if you're not replenishing your stores of micronutrients, then you're actually depleting yourself in eating a diet like that and increasing the number of these free radicals running around, these inflammatory free radicals that are scavenging the, the insides of your blood vessels and, you know, hardening them up and, and, and also creating this, this substrate for arrhythmia where you have scarring in the, in the heart muscle that causes an electrical current instead of flowing smoothly through the heart to hit this section of scar tissue and then instead, you know, turn around in a sort of an eddy current like a rock in the middle of a river would. So yeah, diet has, plays a big role and we're not in a position to tell you, you know, eat a paleo diet, eat this diet, eat that diet, but, but certainly to avoid diets high in simple sugars 
that's a no-brainer to have have a diet that's as non-inflammatory as you can have. Yeah, so let's talk about that for just a sec. Now, when you talk about sugars, we're talking about simple sugars, right? Like refined sugars, that type of thing. Not so much about carbohydrate. Well, it's it's. I think it's worth noting that there's what's best for you on the bike or during your events or during training and what's best for you when you're not on those, um, doing your, doing your thing, simple sugars, uh, glucose, fructose, those types of things are what your body needs, the energy it needs to burn when you're being active and putting that into your system is what you're going to be needing, uh, during your events and during your training. And those are, the simple sugars and the the gels and the blocks and many of the things that people consume during their events and during their training contain those simple sugars. It's a glorified candy in a way, but that's what your body needs to operate. When you're not on your bike, when you're not running, when you're not training, your body definitely would benefit from having other types of foods with higher levels of macronutrients, higher uh, density of vitamins and minerals, and these other things that help with the inflammatory process, help to reduce it, help to replenish what's been lost. So I don't know if that directly answers your question, but... Yeah, it does. I think I think it's a good point. It, and clearly, you can't really perform well in endurance-type events without replacing the glycogen stores from the muscle or the glucose that you need. So you got to do it. Yeah. And, and then your choices there are a whole nother can of worms. But I'll tell you what, I've been spending a lot of time looking at the work of uh, Dr. George Brooks on lactate tolerance training. And, and I, I'm going to sound like an infomercial and I don't want to because I'm really not supporting the product other than I'm curious that uh, this product Cytomax is now come to light with me because I, I understand that they're they're pushing lactate into the product as opposed to just simple sugars and apparently the lactate is a little bit more agreeable with your heart and your brain any thoughts on that I mean that's just kind of a off-the-cuff type of a, a question but I'm thinking of ways to try to get around just pounding the the heavy-duty simple goos and things like that well, I, I certainly agree with that and certainly in the 80s when I was heavily into racing, lactate was looked at as, as somehow the, the enemy that at the Olympic Training Center, you'd constantly be doing these, these ergometer tests where they'd be taking blood from you and pinpricks and measuring your lactate level and looking your, at your lactate curve and, and uh, finding your aerobic threshold that way. And, and you're always thinking, boy, I want to reduce lactate, I want to reduce lactate. But lactate is a fuel that your body uses and to to look at it as the enemy is is really uh, distorted that what you're trying to do is increase your ability to buffer lactate at high blood concentrations of it but that lactate is when it's what's going to get you down the road and and yeah to to have a a way to deliver to deliver lactate to yourself in a way that um, is is healthier for you than gobbling off glucose is it seems like a good approach I'm actually writing a book on the very topic of lactate tolerance training, trying to develop a better understanding of how to approach training, which was 
The other reason why I wanted to do this, because I have some thoughts on how intervals should be structured uh, where your top end heart rates and your intervals should be governed as opposed to just allowing this random assault on your heart rate with intensity and not giving much credence to the amount of recovery required at the bottom of the sets and how much intensity you put at the top of the sets. Concept being that you want to try to improve the ability to process lactate as an energy source as opposed to having become so debilitating. It just kind of, you can't deal with it, it takes you out and you can't process it as an energy source in a timely fashion. I think all of this kind of is hand in hand, right? It's like, you know, just butchering the, the heart with uh, unbridled intensity and not giving yourself the adequate recovery, whether it be during training or post-training. These are the things that people need to really start wrapping their head around. Would you agree with that? Yes. Absolutely. All right. So it's an interesting read for sure. And if it doesn't do anything other than to cause people to think that they might want to take a little bit more recovery at the back end of this training that they're doing, this high intensity training they're doing, or this heavy duty volume training that they're doing, and maybe even get a concept of periodization going where they just start to really plan the amount of recovery that they're planning to take. And I like what you said, Chris, you said you need to rest as much as you train. And it's interesting you say that because I heard that said before by uh, Stephanie Bishop, a female who has won Tough Mudder World Championships, which is a, a 24-hour obstacle course race that I think she covered around 90 miles with God knows how many uh, obstacles in the course of all that. And she's definitely a strong believer in making sure that you get plenty of recovery behind your work. Yeah, you know, everybody wants to be faster, be better. Um, if you just continue to bludgeon yourself over and over again, um, you might think you're tough and strong, but you actually are doing a disservice to your to yourself because you're not going to be performing out to your best. Um, re rest and recovery is an essential part of being at your best. So I can't stress that enough. Well, gentlemen, it was a uh... It was an enlightening conversation, and I, I highly recommend that folks uh, get copies of this book and uh, give it a read. So it's through Velo Press, right? Where's the best place to find this? Yeah, the uh, so the paperback edition is going to be out in, uh, I believe, late March, early April. Hardcover is available now. You can get it at most local bookstores online selected running cycling and triathlon shops or through Vela press and their the web the website is the haywireheart.com excellent gentlemen thank you for your time i appreciate it and uh hopefully we'll get a chance to talk to you about some some higher notes right <laughs> absolutely thanks for having us all right guys well friends it's time to bring another show to a close be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.